Good morning, everyone. Everyone's so quiet and well behaved. (laughs) Or saving it up for the class, who knows? Welcome back to Proverbs. We are in the middle of chapter 3. And if you don't uh, have a Bible with you or one that you can turn on, we do have some off to the sides here, so please feel free to come up and grab one of those. I'll reintroduce where we are and give us just a little bit of context, not much, but let's do that after the invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, last week we reflected um, on chapter 3, especially looking at verses 13 through 20. And of course, uh, this is the ending, uh, 19, or excuse me, 18 through 20 is the ending of the third address to a son. So the father addressing his son, and again, the third of ten. These are independent units, but of course, thematically, they overlap and build upon one another. I'll simply draw your attention back to verse 18, where wisdom is here called a tree of life, taking us back to Genesis and even more deeply to Christ and his cross. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And of course, we heard that in the text today, the gospel text, the Beatitudes of Christ, his Sermon on the Mount. And then we continue with this theme where Solomon leads us all the way back to Genesis in the very first chapter. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open. Remember the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep. And the clouds drop down the dew. So we have food and water, the very essence of life, the very beginning of creation. And all of this with a Christocentric sense and meaning. So a really rather profound uh, section of Proverbs here that invites our further contemplation. Even though there's no indication of it in at least the English Standard Version, verse 21 begins a new section. This is the fourth address to a son. And you can tell that because Verse 21 begins, my son. And and so when Solomon's writing, he's not writing with chapter and verse included. Those are added much later. And so these markers, verbal markers, my son, is the way we're marking a new section. So this is the fourth address to a son, again, of ten total. My son, do not lose sight of these... Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul. 
So we can see an overlap with what immediately preceded. They will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. So you can think of a pendant, and that pendant hangs down over one's heart, and so you can think of that connection. It's also beauty, and so wisdom is the adornment. Then you will walk on your way, so yet another nod to this idea of life as a path, and one ought to pay attention to their walk and their way, what path they're on. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, maybe a little more literally, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Which is interesting. That wisdom will take away what I think we might rightly call today anxiety. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. I doubt that this is someone afraid that a monster is going to crawl out from under the bed. This kind of fear is anxiety for what's coming the next day. And so wisdom will help us mitigate anxiety. Now, I'm not talking about something maybe medical per se here. I'll give myself that out and that caveat. The flip side being we over-medicate everything instantly because we have completely lost any sense of the spiritual and lost any sense whatsoever that anxiety has as its root a spiritual cause. How so? Well, why are we anxious? Things are unknown, uncertain, out of our control. What's in our control? We might mess up. You can stew over countless worries, and you can be attacked by worry and anxiety almost involuntarily as well. So you've probably noticed that it's not generally while you're sitting having dinner or while you're watching your show or maybe you've clicked onto social media or you're reading a book or some other thing. It's not usually when anxiety hits you go through your whole routine, you crawl into bed, you lay down, you're just about asleep, and that's when it often hits. Worries or fears. You can also wake up in the middle of your sleep with these worries or fears, and sometimes they're even irrational. Sometimes as soon as you wake up and turn on the light, and go get a cup of milk or whatever it is you do, uh, the anxiety already is dissipating. But these anxieties have at their root a disconnect at the very intimate level that we have with our souls and our God. There's no such thing as anxiety in heaven. Why? We see him as he is. We know him as he is. All things are in his hand. Even the worst possible thing that we could fathom isn't that bad if he is with us and for us and will bring us through it. So this wisdom can be used when these involuntary attacks of anxiety rush upon us. This wisdom of God, who God is, 
who he is for us in his son, his fatherly care and provision. This is the, these are weapons that we can use to stave off and fight off those anxious thoughts, those restless nights. So here Solomon connects this idea of not losing sight of and keeping sound wisdom and discretion, their life for your soul, their adornment for your neck. When you walk on your way, it will be securely. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, so there's day, walking, and night. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. All right, then what follows are six do not statements. Before we go on there, I want to give you opportunity to uh, dialogue with me about what's gone on here to four. Maybe you have some uh, thoughts of your own questions, uh, comments, your own experiences. And if not, we'll go on to the six do nots. Not donuts. I saw somebody getting excited. All right. First, do not be afraid of sudden terror. This has a, a referent, if you remember back in chapter 126, wisdom has been imploring the foolish to come to her, and this is wisdom's call for repentance, so we who are foolish in our sins would repent and turn to wisdom. But those who mock at wisdom and will not turn to her, then in the time of calamity, she will mock. Okay. The flip side of that is in the time of calamity, she will help if you have turned to her. So this section, um, tracing all the way back to chapter 126 and um, that first poem about wisdom. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence. And again, that's the heart of this whole section. It's the reason why we need not be afraid, why our sleep can be sweet, is because the Lord is our confidence. He is our trust. And he will keep your foot from being caught. All right, so at the heart of Anxiety or that fear is a fear of what is unknown, what is unpredictable, what could immediately happen at any second. And the wisdom of the Lord is such that we need not be afraid of this or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. The Lord is our confidence. He will keep our foot from being caught. All right, that's the first do not. The next do not is at verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Now, I'll connect that with the next do not in verse 28 because I do think that they're very closely related. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So, what is being said here I think is straightforward enough if you owe someone good perform it when it is in your power to do so 
Don't wait. Don't delay. It's bad for you to do that. Even though it might seem like prudence, that's a fallen kind of prudence, a sinful kind of wisdom. All right, and then likewise, don't say to your neighbor, hey, go and come again. I'll give it to you tomorrow when you already have it right there with you. So I think there is a kind of seize the day with your good works theme in these two do not sayings. All right, the third do not saying, 29, do not plan Ra'ah, evil, against your Re'aka, neighbor. Do not, you can hear the verbal play. Do not plan Ra'ah against your Ra'aka, who dwells trustingly beside you. All right. I mean, it's to, to do something evil is bad enough to premeditate it. And to uh, especially premeditate it on the basis of the fact that they dwell trustingly beside you <laughs> is extremely evil and pernicious. So there's layers and levels of the evil here uh, that wisdom forbids us to do. Again, I don't think that these are anything other than straightforward, so I'm just going to keep going along and I'll pause at the end of these and see if you would like to explore anything further. Verse 30 then is the fifth do not statement. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Again, very straightforward, but something we can pay attention to, whether that's verbal contention or some sort of uh, physical contention over property or this, that, or the other thing. These are precluded here by wisdom. Sixth, do not envy a man of violence. And this is interesting. It's Hamas. It's oppressor. So a man of of violence, an oppressor. um, And do not Choose any of his ways. So there are those in this world that will have the ability to oppress others, to force their will upon others. Don't envy such a person. Don't wish for such power. That's the the admonition of wisdom. And do not choose any of his ways. So even if you would reject being an oppressor, a man of violence... You might say, well, but I'll pick and choose this or that that he does. Wisdom says, no, don't choose any of his ways. Full rejection of this path. All right, and the thought continues on in verse 32. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. But the upright are in his confidence. Okay, so a couple different ideas here that are a little foreign to us, but the devious person is an abomination. That is something detestable or loathsome to the Lord. But the upright, 
are in his confidence, like confidence here, his secret counsel. So the devious person he wants nothing to do with, save maybe to punish, but the upright he draws into his secret counsel, he reckons as a friend. So you have devious versus upright. And inherent here is that idea of simplicity. Like as our Lord says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be straightforward with your neighbor. Be simple with your neighbor. Don't be tricky. Don't equivocate. Don't find loopholes. Don't do that stuff. That's the way of the devious. All right. Let's ride this on out. Verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. For the uh, scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Okay, so here is then connected with verse 33, overshadowing all that has formerly come in this address to the Son. Why would you do these things or not do these things? Because the Lord is watching and judging. Present tense. That's why. And his curse is on the house of the wicked. He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Um, And then you have this ABBA format here in verse 34 and 35. A, toward the scorners, he is scornful. We saw wisdom be the same exact way. So here the Lord explicitly identified with wisdom. To the humble he gives favor. And then you can see the wise. So B, to the humble he gives favor. B, the wise will inherit honor. uh, Which we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the other A, but fools get disgrace. So scorners, to scorners he is scornful. To fools he gives disgrace. But to the humble he gives favor. To the wise he gives the inheritance of honor. Which is uh, the kabood word, or kavud, which is glory which can have a cultic connotation of sharing in his glory. Okay, so the stakes are high. God is paying attention. And that's probably the biggest temptation that we have in regard to these specific dynamics is to think, and I know we do this all the time, it's the deadness and delusion of our sinful nature. God's way up there and he doesn't care. That's the way we often think, and that's the way we often conduct ourselves. Um, Let's see if he cares. That kind of thing. And it doesn't go well. But that's really at the essence of all sin, especially where we sin against a neighbor, where it's in our power to sin against a neighbor, and we do that. This then instructing us in regard to wisdom to effectively wake up and realize that no one gets away with anything, God is up there to bless and to curse. So conduct yourself in a way of wisdom. What does wisdom look like? Not doing all of these things listed. And in particular, being upright. 
being upright, being humble, being wise. All right, let me pause there because that brings an end to the fourth address to a son. Again, I'm not doing a ton of talking here because I think it's pretty straightforward. And if you uh, disagree, let me know. Oh, I don't disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to say that right off the bat. Um, But I thought it was interesting that at the beginning of this section here, blessed is one who finds wisdom, that it's, it's laying out some you know, ways in which you are blessed by by doing it. And then it jumps to the, my son, don't lose sight of these, and then the do not statements. But I thought it, that 19 and 20 were kind of an interesting linchpin. In between all of that, it's like they, it could have just gone from 18 to 21. It would have been fine. But it, it skipped, the, it put in that verses 19 and 20, and I thought it was interesting. It also could have said, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth, established the heavens, the deeps broke open. But we get three interesting words in there, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And those three, I think, maybe bear looking at them a little more deeply to help us get the full picture of what we're looking at here because clearly this was an important statement to stick right in the middle of all of this it's it's true it's true and the reason i i chose not to go into detail there um these are very similar words to words we've had up here before so wisdom understanding and knowledge while they can be distinguished one from another tend to function with an overlapping semantic domain. So I think that I think the takeaway because you have you have a kind of it's more subtle than you have in 34 and 35 where you have a very clear ABBA structure. You have the same thing going on here at the end of uh, the third address to a son. You have the same ABBA thing going. It's just, like I said, a little more subtle. So the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. And then that coincides with the clouds drop down the dew. Very earthly picture. And then look at the BB, um, heavenly picture. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open. Okay, so... It's the Lord, and then instrumentally he uses wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in order to order the heavens and the earth. And I think the real take-home point then, okay, so if you want to see the Father speaking creation to being and the Word being the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge that he's using to order, you can do that, even if that might be a little bit of an imposition upon the text. The Lord is still using wisdom to order everything. So if you go back to the Genesis account and the six days of creation, what you're going to see is supreme wisdom in his distinction of kinds, in his division of kinds, and in what we call his ordering of creation. You're going to see that the cosmos, including all of its creatures, flows together in an orderly and systemic way. All right, And then we can analyze from that level what is foolishness or sinfulness to disorder that ordering. It's rebellion, but it's not just rebellion, it's foolishness. Because you're just destroying something beautiful, if you even can destroy it. And insofar as the author and painter allows you to destroy it before he removes you from it. So that, 
and I think there the value is um, maybe as Western-minded people, pretty darn steeped in academia, we think of wisdom as something that takes place in a classroom, maybe even a Sunday school room, and wisdom is kind of a download of knowledge on the one side and a retention of knowledge on the other side. What this view gives us is that wisdom permeates everything. So, and I would put it this way, even if it's the safest approach, I don't really care, I like being safe. Informed by the scriptures, we can see the wisdom of God permeating creation and the order of creation. So that no classroom required, per se. <laughs> you could, I mean, look, you can learn in a classroom, okay? But the point being, it's not limited to that. And this is maybe some of, we've been chased away from this, I think, unintentionally, even within the Western Christian tradition, because we're, we're worried about being superstitious, or we're worried about not being sola scriptura enough, okay? And those are things worth guarding, to be sure. But the flip side of that, and, and if we narrow ourselves too much, is that you won't go out into creation and read it as the revelation of God. You won't go out into creation and study and take it in as the revelation of God. And again, the safe way to do this is informed by the scriptures. Okay? So you can literally go sit out on a park bench and instead of just like, and I think that this is what we do often, we just say, well, I'm just enjoying the sunset. And not if you're really thinking about it. You're not just enjoying the sunset. You're contemplating the sunset. You're looking at the different colors. You're looking at the movement. You're looking at the interplay. Maybe your mind's thinking about the angle of the sun, about the, fa- the odd fact that we're on this globe. And how fast is this globe spinning anywhere? Anyway, and where are we going in this great cosmic place where everything's whipping along at tens of thousands of miles an hour, and yet it's relatively still to us? And what does that sun have to say? What does that sun setting have to say about Christ? And what do the scriptures say about the Psalm, what are the, the sun, and what do the church fathers say about the sun being the great preacher of who Christ is, and, uh, and on and on and on, you see? So what you're doing as you take in nature, and I mean, again, a part of this, part of this requires that we take these little slavery devices, you know, that we all have a love-hate relationship with, and, um, you know, we need them and we gain great wisdom from them on the one hand. On the other hand, they shackle us and blind us. And so we do need times where we put those things down and take in nature and let our thoughts flow with nature and with what we see and contemplate and think. And there's nothing hokey or woo-woo or Eastern or, you know, anything else about it. It's right here in uh, the, the wisdom of Solomon that it is... Wisdom isn't something outside of creation. I mean, it is in the sense that it's identified with God. Okay, fine. But by means of wisdom, he, found, he founded the earth. He established the heavens. The deeps broke open. The clouds dropped their dew. That is to say that we're going to see wisdom and his wisdom reflected all throughout creation. And that's endless. It's endless. It's part of the contemplation of God. Is to con- In the same way... You know, how do you learn about an artist by studying his or her art? And how do you study God, the creator, by studying what he's 
created. That's, I think, the principle and point here. So really a holistic way of looking at the creation and looking at ourselves. Um, our, our bodies, our biology, the difference between male and female, the way that families are created and work, the way societies are ordered and either work or don't work, all of these are windows in to the creator who ordered us by his wisdom. Make sense? Okay. And I, w- I would say, too, that the more adept we are at understanding that wisdom, the more adept we're going to be at, sp- at bearing witness to the pagans. Because when you go to the pagans and you say, well, the Bible says, they say, well, I don't care about the Bible. But when you go to, and you say, hey, look at how the body's constructed. Now they're listening. Okay, there's a design and a function that go together. Now they're listening. Now you're on, you're on shared ground. And that's the way that the early church fathers, especially in the earliest days of the church, really argued. You don't see this so much in the book of Acts, because in the book of Acts, they're primarily bearing witness to Jews who get the scriptures. So it's almost all scripture-based. Now you see Paul making extra-scriptural arguments when he goes out to the Gentiles. And that only blossoms and grows in the early centuries of the church. So if, if we do see America becoming, quote-unquote, unchurched or less churched, the response isn't to double down on, hey, this is what God's Word says. The response is to engage them in, in the common ground of the wisdom of creation and to make your case and your argument there on that basis and make Christianity rational on that basis. Make sense? Okay, sorry, that was probably a lot more than you asked for, but, yeah. Okay, yes, please. Um, I find myself envying the ways of the violent. Um, right, there's the, you know, the passage, the proverb, and so, well, let me give you an example. You mentioned Hamas, right? Uh, now, that also happens to be the name of a terrorist organization, which carries out violent acts shamelessly, ruthlessly, without any reflection or regard. Yet in the West, when we try to reply, we have to agonize over everything we do. And it's always, we have to, we can't, you know, we have to worry that, you know, we might kill an endangered species or something like that if we drop a bomb on a terrorist nest. I mean, we have to worry about every silly thing. And so I find myself wishing we could be more like Hamas. Um, now, uh, what I'd really like you to do is give me a nuanced reading of the text that gives me a loophole for feeling like that. <laughs> but maybe you can just say something that makes me feel better about the proverb. I can get you close, and I can, I can try to share, you, share with you some insight that it might scandalize a few people, but, you know... That's not exactly unfamiliar territory for me. Okay, so vengeance isn't wrong. Anger isn't wrong. Hatred isn't wrong. There are things that God hates. 
We see it right here. They're loathsome and abomination. There are things that God is furious over, rightfully so. And if we don't share in his fury, it's not because we're more gracious than God. It's because we're fouled up and perverse. And God himself is violent in the Old Testament and in the New. All right. Thus, there's nothing inherently wrong with violence. Okay? Vengeance isn't wrong. Vengeance is the Lord's. And a lot of those feelings that we have as Christians, we've been told are bad or ungodly, which is just flat out wrong to the point of heretical. And insofar as we're accused of sin, the real accusation of sin falls upon God. And a generation or two have cut out the imprecatory psalms from the hymnal because we can't stand anything that might go against our religion of American niceness that we've mistaken to be the biblical gospel. Okay, so a lot of, a lot of this sort of energy and thinking um, need, needs to get channeled into the appropriate place, which is that God's vengeance is in fact coming. And it will be decisive. It will be swift and it will be unlike anything the world has ever seen or will ever see again. Like a thief in the night and the image, if you want to have an image in your head of uh, your Lord Jesus when he returns, don't picture him in a hemp robe with Birkenstocks and flowers and angels flowing behind him. All right, picture him biblically as riding on a white horse with his sword out and as he rides through the earth and through the earthly Jerusalem, the blood of his enemies is up to the bridle of his horse. Vengeance isn't wrong, vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance isn't wrong, vengeance is coming. And that's part of the impetus for our evangelistic outreach. It's like, oh dear, they're not going to believe and God's somehow not going to be glorified. No, the Lord is coming in great wrath and vengeance. Would you like to escape? I would like very much for you to escape. He would like very much for you to escape because when he starts writing, he's not going to stop and it's going to be too late. All right, so so much of, uh, now here's a little bit of application. So much of American paganism views Christianity according to the heresy that so many Christians themselves hold, which is Christianity is a religion of love. L-U-V, love. Love that is nothing like God who is love. Love who is nothing like the one we're, but just love. And so you'll immediately get called out if you say anything about this, or if you enact in any way, aggressively, confidently, no, it's you who need to repent, or you're going to be put to an end. Just, oh, I thought Christianity was a religion of love. Nope. Because you mean L-U-V. I mean L-O-V-E. Want to, want to know the difference? <laughs> okay, so uh, what, a lot of what we need to do is frankly be more brash, be more aggressive, be more militant, be more confident, and put people on their heels. 
And where they assume that they know what Christianity is, I know you're Jesus, that's not very Jesus-like, says the person who has never read anything from Jesus, hates and despises Jesus, but will only use Jesus to quote against you. You ought to do anything in your power to just utterly despise, overturn, and destroy whatever Jesus they think they have in their minds. And trample that and trample the stereotype overfoot so that they're just left going like this. That's the point, okay? And that, by the way, this is not without biblical precedent. Look at the way the minor prophets speak to people. They curse them. They use violent language with them. They use four-letter words. They call them names. They depict them as utterly foolish. They scorn them and mock them. Now, I'm not really saying that that should be your default position. Okay, I'm not really saying, like, go out and, you know, flame away on social media. Okay, that's not really the point. And I don't really want you to mistake that for being my point. If I am pushing the envelope too far in one direction, it's simply because for so long it's been pushed so far in the other direction. Here I am tugging all the way with all my might on the other side. If I fall into error, so be it. Correct me. We'll get back to the middle. But I'm just pulling the opposite direction as hard as I can because that's the reason why nobody cares what we have to say because we're not saying anything. And we're we're taking them on good faith when they're not taking us on good faith. And we're assuming that they're using the language in exactly the same way we're using the language. And all of this is stupid and wrong. So I think we could be obviously like really truthful, really loving, and when necessary, really confident and really spicy. That, I think, would help our witness more than anything else, especially as we're engaging you know, strangers who have... I, I was struck by this the other day because it's such a simple story. And, but I was, I, I was kind of struck by it because how long have I lived my life um, like an Israelite? So remember, um, remember Goliath? And I think it was like for 40 days or something like that, uh, maybe even longer, he was taunting the armies of Israel and blaspheming their God. What was it that ticked David off that ticked nobody else off? Precisely that, that he was daring to blaspheme God. The rest of Israel was like, "Mm, mm, mm." so there is a sense of piety and outrage in David that manifests according with the time, the place, and the circumstances. So I think we need to be careful to read the time, the place, the circumstances. I'm not saying go get your five smooth stones and fleck a rock at whoever troubles you next. Okay, that's not the point. Or whoever mocks God, you know, you've got to go take their sword from them and handle business. That's not what I'm saying. But according to time, place, and what's been given you to do. But there ought to be a sense of outrage and a sense of outrage at fellow Christians who just don't care that God's name is being blasphemed and a sense of, how dare you, sir? Now, a lot of that is for their own good because you're driving them to a genuine repentance because the Lord's going to take care of his business. We don't have to take up the five smooth stones or go off with his head with his own sword as David did to Goliath. We don't have to do that because, again, that's not given for us to do, but it is what the Lord will do when he returns in wrath and fury. So part of leading the way and saying, hey, that's coming, you might want to get out of the way, you're being real stupid right now, uh, is 
is exactly what's needed rather than baby cakes and oh it's okay if you blast you know, um, let, let's change everything I don't know let, can, we, can we bring you in with some lattes and some theater seating can we laugh at our God too and laugh and mock at ourselves and laugh and mock at Christianity I'm just not down for it anymore I guess that that was a thing for a generation or two what did it get us? zilch it got us a faster decay of the church it got us uh, a complete uh, landslide of decay of our culture. Just color me unimpressed. Even if I've overstated my case here, you can talk to me later. I'll probably apologize somewhat and mitigate it. But understand what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to push us in the other direction. Hopefully that helps someone. Yeah, a little bit of a rant there. Please. And I think of Christ in the temple overthrowing the tables, how outrageous, and calling people oh gosh, yeah. sepulchers and all that. Yeah, I just wasn't skilled enough to do it. Jesus is meek, of course, and, and we just don't understand what biblical meekness is. We think biblical meekness is just being milk toast. Uh, I think we touched on this last week, in fact, with um, when Jesus is greeted by the soldiers, he says, I am that I am, and knocks them flat on their cans before he allows them to take. And I was thinking, too, um, the idea of like turning the other cheek is perfectly what Jesus does to um, Pilate. And Pilate can't, stu- he can't stand it. He can't even fathom it because um, Jesus is talking to him like a man instead of a God wearing Roman clothing. And remember, and Jesus is like, hey, you have no authority except that which is given for you. And Pilate's like, don't you understand that your life is in my hands? And Jesus is like, yeah, and I don't really care. It's like the most masculine, respectful turning of the cheek. Like, okay, you want to hit me? Hit the other cheek. It's masculine. It's respectful of his office. But it's treating him like a man and utterly without fear. It's great. That's a master class in how to be meek but masculine. And I think we see this over and over in the person of Jesus. You mentioned the, uh, you know, the cleansing of the temple. And there are other examples. Um, oh, look at how Jesus, when the Pharisees attack Jesus, does Jesus be like, oh, I'm so sorry I offended you. Let me try to put this in a way that you can understand. No, he publicly embarrasses them by what he says. But what he says is true And what he says is said in love that they might convert. And if they won't convert, at least they'll stop misleading people to eternal damnation. I mean, Jesus is anything but milk toast. And yet he is meek, lowly of heart, gentle of spirit. And that is the that is the wonder and the paradox of what it means to be a Christian. But I think particularly a Christian man. So we all have to regain that. I wanted to preach on that really bad this Sunday, but like I said, it's going to be all about that, and there's like eight other Beatitudes. (laughs) A couple more comments. I'm thinking of the uh, women who threw, was it tomato soup or whatever, at Van Gogh painting of the sunflowers, and I thought, what a little microcosm of this creation that Van Gogh made, and they're trying to destroy it. It's so indicative of, you know, a little microcosm of yeah. what the world's doing. Yeah. And then back to the uh, initial comments you made about anxiety, how our culture has changed. Back in the day when popular songs had words that people could understand, 
There used to be the hit parade, the top ten popular songs for the week. And there would be little scenarios around the music and so forth. And one of the popular songs was, When I'm Worried and I Can't Sleep, I Count My Blessings Instead of Sheep. And I Fall Asleep Counting My Blessings. That's a very popular song. Back yeah, before absolutely. you were born, probably. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and then uh, there was also at the end of Carousel, I think it is, the song "When You Walk Through a Storm, Hold Your Head Up High," and everything. And if you think about the words, they're they're secular words, but they're a reflection of Psalm twenty three in many ways. And that was part of our culture then. Yeah, how things yeah. have changed. Well, you kind of brought me full circle. I mean, anxiety and worry and those things that just they're upon us are properly understood calls to prayer. They're louder and more urgent than any church bells in the history of the church, but that's what they're there for. We recognize it and we immediately turn to the Lord and cast our burdens upon him and make them his burdens. And then, as you said, count our blessings, knowing who he is, what he's done for us in the past, recount the many and various ways He's helped and saved his people of old, helped and saved us in our own lives, and entrust ourselves to him. So thank you for that reflection. Okay, we've got three minutes left. So um, let me just uh, get us a little ways into chapter four. This is an address to sons, plural. And this one stands out on account of that plurality. And so this is an address to sons, plural, and it's one of one here in Proverbs. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Boy, who does this sound like? This sounds like Jesus in the upper room when he tells his disciples to keep his commandments. And it sounds like John, John's epistle, where he repeats this theme. And it sounds like David in Psalm 119. I'm meditating on keeping the precepts, teaching, commandments, which is just expansive. It just means everything in the scriptures, law, gospel, all of it, whatever. Um, All of it is to be cherished, enjoyed, retained, grasped hold of, Okay, so we have, um, well, let's just continue on a little further. Get wisdom, get insight, which then have their parallels in verse 7. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. Okay, so we'll revisit next week um, these two women And this, of course, is the woman wisdom. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. So increasingly the theme 
is that wisdom makes a good wife and the uh, and foolishness the adulteress uh, makes for one's accursedness verse 7 the beginning of wisdom is this get wisdom and whatever you get get insight okay so that's parallel to verse 5 get wisdom get insight and then here you can see again get wisdom and whatever you get get insight uh, which sounds a little awkward to us Um, I can smooth that out next week when I have a bit more time but maybe suffice it to say for our purposes the sense and sentiment of this section is that the foundational thing is wisdom. So, and again, we're just not talking like, hey, read and memorize an encyclopedia. That's not really what's in view. Wisdom is to know the Lord, to fear the Lord, and to walk in his precepts and teachings. That's more fundamental to who we are as human beings than anything else. That's the point. And that's what strikes us is like, hey, get wisdom, whatever you get, get insight. Like, before there's anything else that you desire, desire wisdom and desire insight from the Lord. It's better than all other gifts. And indeed, in some ways, contains all other gifts. Okay, that's it. The Lord be with you. Thank you.